This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. How many times have you heard me speak in the last several years that I didn't give you a chart? This, this morning you don't get a chart, so this will be a first. You might write this one down. So. And there's a reason for that. Your chart is under construction, so this is, this is part of it right here. My computer's down, and I'm not able to build it. Brother Keith had asked me, well, it's a pretty good while back now, maybe a couple of months, uh, if I would give a lesson on personal work. And I, I told him that I would, and I wanted to use John chapter 4, which is the story of Jesus and the woman at the well there in the Samaritan city of Sychar. And I want us to thoroughly study that, uh, that story as we, we talk about personal work, and there'll be several points that I want to make because Jesus was the greatest personal worker the world's ever known. The Lord was perfect in everything He did. If we want to learn how to approach people, how to deal with people, especially people that are in conflict with us as this woman was with Christ, then certainly looking at His example would be something that would profit all of us, I know. And so why not study the best? We can go buy books on personal work and things like that, but how do you improve upon the example of Jesus? And of course you can't. So my goal is to study that example with you in John 4. And this morning, the purpose of the study is going to be to lay some background of things we're going to find in that chapter. Because it's a chapter that's just rich. It's just loaded with history, all kinds of things that maybe you don't know that if you knew those things would make this chapter just come alive and speak to you in ways that maybe it never has. So that's what I want to do this morning is give the background for the lesson on personal work. This will not be a study of personal work today, but it will be a background and history and geography of the things that we find about here in John chapter 4. And I want to read this chapter with you. I don't have scripture to put up on the screen, so you'll need to turn on your device, on your phone or Bible or whatever you're using. And uh, if you don't have such a device, you can listen to me read it, John 4. There's going to be several fairly long readings today, and then I'm going to tie all of this in, hopefully, and try to make some sense out of it and lay this background properly for us. You'll need to remember this for another month or so until I can get this chart made, until we can do the study on personal work. John 4, now beginning at verse 1, I want to read this chapter. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour or it was noon, sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. 
Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He cometh, He will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. Upon this came the, His disciples and marveled that He talked with the woman, Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, <clears throat> they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, 
not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is a detailed story of personal work done by Christ. Jesus converted here one woman initially, one woman, a Samaritan, had nothing in common with her. They had religious differences. They had racial differences. She was morally corrupt. She had lived with five husbands. She was shacked up a man, with a man at this time that she was not married to. Jesus was the sinless Son of God. They had nothing in common. The only thing I can see they had in common was one thing. They were both thirsty. And he used that to start a conversation with this woman and ultimately lead her to salvation and through her was able to teach the men of this city and converted most of that city before it was over. That's a pretty good example of personal work to me when you start out with one study and you convert nearly a whole village and this is what Jesus did on this occasion. Now he was an expert and he could do those things and he could do things and understood things you and I do not. He could read the hearts of people, which we cannot do. We've got to trust our judgment of human nature and such things. There's a lot of exciting points along the way through this, through this story that we'll get to in the course of that study on personal work. But there's some historical and geographical background in this story that if we don't understand, we're not going to understand the story very well. And it's going to help us in a lot of other parts of the Bible, too, on some of these things. Now, some of this I've given you and some I haven't. And I'm not apologizing for anything I've given you because we've got little ones here. And when I look at uh, some of these children that are present, they need to learn these things. Repetition is how we learn. Repetition. And so no apologies. Let's go back to the text here in John 4. I'm just going to go through grab some things out that I want to offer explanation for this morning, either geographically or historically, and talk to you about those things. Notice the first couple of verses that we're told that the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. John's work, John knew it too, would begin to fade, and Jesus would have the preeminence over him. He said that, I must decrease and he must increase. And in the way of preaching and baptizing people, Jesus made and baptized far more disciples than what John was doing. And John was converting multitudes. He was baptizing multitudes. But we're told here in John 4 and 2 that Jesus didn't do the baptizing. <clears throat> so far as we have record of, the Lord, when He was here on earth, never baptized a single person. There's likely a reason for that. It's because somebody would later on think that because Christ had baptized them personally, and maybe Peter and John had done someone else, that maybe their baptism was better than the other baptism. And of course that wouldn't have been the case. And so evidently Jesus did not see fit to baptize with water. He did baptize with the Holy Spirit over in the book of Acts on at least a couple of occasions. But He never baptized with water. His disciples did the baptizing for Him. And uh, you'll see that even in our day and time. I, I don't do a lot of baptizing anymore. I let other brethren do it. Not that I'm too good to do it. It's just that I've done a lot of it. And sometimes it's just really good that local brethren, where I go and preach, local brethren do the baptizing because I'll be up and gone. 
And sometimes there's a closeness between the person who baptizes you and the one that was baptized. And so it's better if that's done by local people in my judgment. And I usually let elders and deacons and church leaders do it anywhere I'm at. I had a baptism last Sunday uh, where I spoke and I let the local brethren do that baptizing. And uh, it isn't that I'm too good to do it. They needed to do it. And now that person there has connections with the one that baptized them and they both attend the same congregation. And in my judgment, that'll be a lot better in years to come than to tell somebody, well, Pat Manning baptized me. Uh, this is a local person there and it's going to be special in that sense. For whatever reason though, Jesus did not do his own baptizing. He let the disciples do it. He has left Judea now, John tells us. And he's going to Galilee. Galilee's up in the north. And he's been down here around Jerusalem and in Judea. And on the way between Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, he's got to go through this region right here. And this is Samaria. This is Samaria. And that's what we're told there in John. Verse 4. He must needs go through Samaria. And I've asked you all several times, what is Samaria? And you'd be surprised there'll be a lot of people uh, religiously that do not know what Samaria is. They hear about it all the time. We see Mr. Graham on television. He's got a fundraiser he does called Samaritan's Purse. You see that in the news a lot. You hear people talk about the Good Samaritan and Jesus taught a story about him in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 17, the the story's told of ten men that met Christ on one occasion and they were lepers and one of them that returned back to give him thanks was a Samaritan. All through the Bible we read about Samaritans. We read of this woman here. She is a Samaritan. What is a Samaritan? What is that? And how did that come about? How do we know what a Samaritan is? I want to give you some history now of stuff that I've given you in the past but I want to remind you and I want our children to remember this because they'll know things that a lot of people around the area don't even know themselves, not even preachers. Nonetheless, if you'll go back in the history of the children of Israel, Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and he'd taken them way over here. He crossed the Red Sea, which by the way has a couple of arms that, uh, that come up and... Uh, this is the Red Sea and it comes on down and dumps into the ocean, goes down along the African coast, down below Egypt. But nonetheless, he had taken them across the Red Sea and led them way back over here to, into Arabia to Mount Sinai and there they camped at the foot of that mountain for one year. While they camped there one year, three main things happened. Uh, number one, the law was given. They camped at the foot of Sinai one year. Number one, the law was given. Number two, they took a census. They numbered the people. That's where we get the name for the book of Numbers. Number three, Moses was given the pattern for the tabernacle there in the mountain. And that tabernacle was their portable worship center and that was built there at Mount Sinai. So they set up camp for a whole year. They didn't move. And at the end of that year, it was time to get up because God had promised all of this land up here to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now it was time to go get it. 
Till this time, Israel had not been a nation. They became a nation while they were down in Egypt. When Joseph brought his family into Egypt, there were 75 of them. Is all that came down into Egypt, all together, counting, counting Joseph and all, I would suppose. 75 of them, not very many. Jacob, his 12 sons, and their wives and children. And from these 12 sons came a whole nation, so that when they left out of Egyptian bondage, and went to Mount Sinai, there's probably somewhere around three to five million. There's a huge number because when they numbered them in the book of, of numbers, they only numbered males that were 20 years old and above, able to go to war. There were 603,550. So think of that number, 603,000. 550 when they took their census. And these are only males, no females, no one under 20 years old, no males that were crippled or elderly or too able to fight, just males able to be part of the army, 603,000. If you took four of those, four other people, uh, for that number right there, you'd come up with about 2,414,000 something. And there were likely more than that because they had huge families back then. So this was a vast number. We're looking at a city the size probably of Houston, Texas that crossed the Red Sea that day with Moses. And now they've become a great nation. They've spent a year at Sinai. They have the law, a census, and a tabernacle. Now it's time to go up here and take this land. In this land there are seven nations that live there. They have got to go in and whip those people and take this land. So when they get down here in the south to a place called Kadesh Barnea, they decide we're going to spy this land out, and that makes good sense. If you're going to attack some place, go get an idea of the strongholds that are there. Go get an idea of what you're up against. <clears throat> so they sent out one man out of each of the 12 tribes, 12 spies up in here, and they just wandered through this land and looked it over for 40 days and came back down to Israel's camp with their report. They loved what they'd seen. There were fenced and walled cities already built. They didn't have to build towns. This would be like China today taking over America. They wouldn't have to build our nation. Our nation's built. If China took us over today, they'd have skyscrapers. They'd have bridges. They would have electrical grids. They would have water lines. They would have oil fields. They would have vineyards. They would have farmland that's cultivated and bears crops every year. I mean, houses everywhere, towns and villages, water supplies, just all of the infrastructure that's here in America, businesses and factories and, and all of this, they could just take it all over. Be quite a land, wouldn't it? They wouldn't have to build any of that stuff. Well, this is what Israel found in the land of Canaan. These spies did. Fenced and walled cities there, fields that were cultivated, vineyards that were planted, wells that were dug. I mean, it was a, it was a prosperous land in there because these nations that were settled in it had developed it. So when they come back, they, they indeed tell Israel, they say, hey, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's got everything we want. The problem is we can't take it. 
There are giants up here in this land. We're like grasshoppers compared to some of the people we've seen. We're just runts. We're just small. And we can't do it. And they lost faith and forgot that God would be fighting for them. And of course Israel listened to ten of those spies that brought this evil report. Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, brought a good report. They said, we can take it. God will fight for us. But the people listened to the ten. They lost their faith. They began to murmur and complain. And God said, all right, this generation is not going in. Every one of you above 20 years old that came out of Egypt, you're going to wander in this wilderness down here till you die. And he caused them to wander 40 years down in here in this barren wilderness under Moses' leadership until finally that generation that was above 20 died off, all except Joshua and Caleb. And of course the youngest then would have been for 40 years, would have now been about 59, or excuse me, the oldest among them would be about 59 right now by the time they got ready to go into Canaan. This was a young nation. Only Joshua and Caleb were over 59. You see, Moses, all of them died off. Moses led them around the east side of the Dead Sea up here to the plains of Moab. And there they set up camp. And they sent spies into Jericho and other places. Uh, eventually Moses was taken up into a mountain over here on the east side of the Dead Sea to Mount Nebo to a peak that's called Pisgah. We sing about it in our songbook like Sweet Hour of Prayer where we sing that line, Till from Mount Pisgah's lofty heights I view my home and take my flight. That's an allusion to Moses who upon the peak of Pisgah from Mount Nebo was able to look over into the land here and he could see 50 miles to the west all the way to the Mediterranean and about 150 miles north and south. <coughs> Moses got a view of this promised land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and he died up there in that mountain. God buried him. And then the leadership of God's people fell over on Joshua. When you read the book of Joshua, you read the conquest of the land. And they went into this land, and this place here that we're reading about in John 4, Joshua visited with Israel. Uh, this Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim here, we'll talk about them in just a minute. And uh, actually Israel set up right here, and that was one of the early worshiping places that they worshiped God at, was right there in those mountains. You can read about it in... Uh, Genesis chapter 33. And um, so now they have gone in under Joshua and they conquer these seven nations. They divided up the land by tribes. All 12 tribes got a portion. Judah got the Jerusalem section down here. This is where the tribe of Judah was and Benjamin was with them. And then 10 tribes lay up in here and across over on this side of the Jordan. And they just divided the land up and settled in. And God put judges over them for about 450 years. So when you study the book of Judges, you will study Samson. You'll study Jephthah. You'll study uh, even some, some women that uh, judged them. Deborah was one of the judges. She judged Israel, Judges chapter 4. And uh, you read all that period, that history of the Judges. Finally, in the days of Samuel, who was the last prophet and judge there, he wasn't the last prophet, but he was the last judge, the people came to him and they demanded a king. And uh, Samuel tried to persuade them differently, but they insisted on a king. And 
So God told Samuel, give them a king. Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. God had been their king. And of course, you couldn't get a better monarch than, than God because he would always do right. The problem is an earthly king doesn't. Your, your king is no better than his character. And uh, God knew and Sam, Samuel knew that these kings get corrupt and every now and then you get evil rulers. And when you get a man that doesn't rule justly, that doesn't treat people fairly, you're going to get problems. So God gave them their first king. It was a man named Saul. He was out of the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, Saul was an evil king. He reigned 40 years. All during his reign, if you remember, he, he sought to kill David. Tried several times to kill David. David could have killed him, but wouldn't do it. And eventually, when Saul died, David took over as king. He was out of the tribe of Judah. And God promised David and swore to him that his descendant would always sit on the throne ruling God's people. He swore with an oath, you'll have a descendant and you'll always have a descendant that will rule over my people. And he wasn't just talking about physical Israel, he was talking about us. And uh, David's line then of rulers coming from his lineage begins to occur with Solomon. And then Solomon had a son named Rehoboam and so on down through David's lineage. All the way to the captivity to Babylon, there was a descendant of David that ruled the throne, ruled Judah. That, that line was broken when Israel was captured by Babylon in 606. And David's descendants, there was no, there was no king in, in Judah. For a long time, there was no descendant of David to rule. Now let me just, I'm deviating a minute, but let me just say this. When Jesus Christ was born, He is of the lineage of David. And when Jesus ascended back to heaven and set up His kingdom and began ruling over the church and over God's people, that lineage of David again was put back in place. And that oath that God swore to David was fulfilled in Christ. There is still a descendant of David ruling on the throne today over God's people. His name is Jesus Christ. And this oath that God made with David back there is still being carried on right now. Jesus rules this morning. And he'll always rule. David will always have a descendant on his throne as long as Jesus Christ rules. This was part of that oath sworn to him. That's why I said it was bigger than just his physical lineage. You see, we're still under that. And I just want to throw that in today to show you God is so faithful when he makes these oaths and promises. And uh, David's got that descendant today on the throne. But I deviated. When David died, uh, David had been a great warrior, by the way. David whipped every enemy Israel ever had. He just whipped them. And David gave them peace from all their enemies round about. Nobody bothered Israel after David got through with them. He was such a great warrior. God blessed him uh, in so many ways. In fact, there were nations that paid to keep Israel off their back. They paid tribute money to Israel because Israel was so strong. They didn't want to mess with them. And so they even paid money to them just to try to, try to be friends. When Solomon, David's son, was born after, and, and took the throne after David's death, Solomon inherited a great kingdom that his father had left him. 
David had bought a piece of ground from uh, one of the Jebusites by the name of Ornan. He'd bought him a hill there in the city of Jerusalem. And later Solomon would be privileged to, to build the temple on this parcel of ground. God never would let David build it, but he let Solomon. So David reigned 40 years, and when he died, Solomon took over, and he reigned 40 years. Solomon was this very man that Samuel and God had warned about. He was a tyrant. And he had ruined the nation, and they were sick of him. Because Solomon, just uh, as a monarch can do, he just took anything he wanted. If you had a beautiful daughter and he wanted her in his harem, he wanted her for a wife or a mistress, he just took her. And Solomon had 700 wives. Imagine that, 700 wives and he had 300 mistresses. He had 1,000 women in his harem. So he had stolen a lot of daughters in Israel, hadn't he? Taken a lot of men's daughters, beautiful daughters, and made them part of his harem. He had taken his sons, their sons. He'd made them part of his army. He had made them uh, masons, whatever uh, artisan or craftsman that he needed. If your son was good at that or your daughter was a, a wonderful cook or whatever, in whatever way he might want her. He just took people. He just put them in positions where he wanted them. And he had disrupted the lives of so many people. He had, he had ruled so harshly, just taking what he wanted. Solomon was so wealthy because David had left him such peace and prosperity. <clears throat> Down here on the arm of the Red Sea, this eastern arm of it, there's a town right down here called Ezion Geber. Solomon even had a navy down there. He had ships that would sail down this Red Sea and out into the ocean, go down along the African coast. They would bring him back ivory. They brought him back gold. They brought him back exotic animals like peacocks. I mean, Solomon had anything he wanted from around the world like this just wealth rolling into him, but he had ruined the people, and they were sick of him. And so when Solomon died, whereas the kingdom had been united and all twelve tribes had been together, now it divides after Solomon's death. Solomon had a son by the name of Rehoboam, and the people came to Rehoboam asking him how he would reign. And he tells them, after some counsel with some of the younger men, I'm going to be more harsh than my father is. And that caused a rebellion. And it caused a split in the twelve tribes where, at, where ten of them pulled away and refused to serve Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and picked them a king by the name of Jeroboam and formed a northern kingdom up here in the north that took the name Israel and two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed loyal down here in the south to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they formed them a kingdom down here in the south called Judah, which eventually became the Jews. And now this thing split. And I want to go to 1 Kings 12 with you. 1 Kings 12 and read about this. Give you the history of it. You've got a text there on that. Turn and read with me, 1 Kings 12. The Bible says that Rehoboam went to Shechem. 
for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. It came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt. Now Jeroboam's down here in Egypt, and he hears they're going to make Rehoboam king. He leaves Egypt because he's been running from Solomon. He's down here in Egypt. He's been hiding from Solomon. Now he comes out of hiding when Solomon dies, and when he hears Rehoboam's up here around uh, Shechem, right here, trying to be made king, then he comes up out of Egypt here and joins up with the others. Verse 3, They that sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the, the grievous service of thy father, and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days. Then come again to me, and the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do you advise <clears throat> that I may answer this people? And they spake unto him, saying, <clears throat> If thou will be a servant unto this people this day, and will serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter? And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. And thus shalt thou say unto them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now whereas my father did laid you with heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that that they gave him, and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which he spake by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we any inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see ye to thine own house, David. So Israel departed under their tents. But as for the children of Israel, which dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then king Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the tribute, Unto all Israel, and all Israel stoned him with stones that he died. So Jeroboam sent somebody over his tribute there, or, or Rehoboam did, and they killed him. Therefore King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. 
There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah. And of course, eventually, Benjamin joined them. Now let me say this at verse 21 as we stop here a minute. The two tribes to the south are Judah and Benjamin. The tribe of Levi was never numbered among the twelve tribes. I don't know if y'all remember that or that, but or that or not. But when when they divided up the inheritance of land and and selected the twelve tribes, Joseph had two sons. Joseph had been so faithful to God. He had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so these two sons of Joseph each got a portion of land. In other words, Joseph's kids got a double inheritance. And so whereas you had twelve tribes and Levi, this tribe was set aside to minister at the temple or the tabernacle and were never reckoned. Uh, that left eleven tribes. One of those, of course, uh, actually it left ten tribes if you want to say it that way. And then Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, made it twelve tribes. So when you read a list of the twelve tribes of Israel, you'll read about Ephraim and Manasseh. These are Joseph's boys. Okay, Levi is not reckoned in that number. Joseph had a double portion and that filled out the twelve tribes. So that means that Judah and Benjamin were down here in the south and the tribe of Levi stayed down here as well even though they weren't numbered. They were the priests and Levites that ministered at the temple that Solomon built. Solomon had built the temple there and it existed in Jerusalem and that was the center of worship with the tribe of Levi ministering there. So in essence you had three tribes down here but really only two were numbered. And I just wanted to explain that. Okay. Now verse 21. When Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin a hundred and fourscore thousand chosen men, which were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So Rehoboam raised him an army, 144,000. He was going to whip the ten tribes and reunite the kingdom, all twelve tribes together. But the word of the Lord came unto Shimei, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. They hearkened therefore to the word of the Lord, and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. Alright, stopping at 25. Now let me say something else. Jeroboam, there was a borderline now. The borderline, about right through here, I'm, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. It's on the south side. This is Bethel. That border ran underneath Bethel. Bethel kind of sat just above the border. Probably closer than that. But uh, Jeroboam's now is ruling the north. And the reason this is the northern kingdom and Judah's the southern kingdom is is because of this dividing line. The land for Judah and Benjamin lay south of this line and these ten tribes occupied the land either north of that line right up here or over on the east side of the, of the Jordan River also. They, they were part of it, see. And uh, so that's why you had north and south. Right along and through here was your border. Bethel just to the north. 
Now Jeroboam up here that ruled the ten tribes was scared to death. He knows that if any people go up to the temple here in Jerusalem to worship, that is, if they go up for Passover, if they go for Pentecost, if they go up there for the Feast of Tabernacles, if they go up here for the Day of Atonement, when, when atonement is made for the sins of the people, if they go up here to sacrifice in any way at this temple, he is afraid that Rehoboam's son, excuse me, that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, will get control over them. That they'll become loyal to him instead of being loyal to Jeroboam. And he'll lose his kingdom and they'll kill him. So here's what he's, he's about to do, and we'll read it here in just a minute. He builds him an altar right here at Bethel. He puts another one up here in the north at Dan. He made golden calves, and he put a golden calf right here at each altar. And he told the ten tribes, it's too much for you to go up here to Jerusalem. Don't do that. That's just too far. Don't mess with that. Behold your gods, Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he caused them to worship these calves right here at these altars. And he set up a whole false system of religion. Here's what he did. He made him some false feast days that mimicked the feast days that were part of Moses' law so that they'd have feast days to keep up here, see. They wouldn't have to go to the ones in Jerusalem. He set him up a priest that weren't of the sons of Levi out of the family of Aaron. He set him up people that weren't qualified to be priests according to the law. So he set him up a false priesthood up here. In other words, he set up a whole false religion up here in the north just to keep control of people. This is how wicked he was. So they would not go to Solomon's temple there in Jerusalem and take the chance of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, getting rule over them, see. And if you'll remember in 1 Kings 13, which is the next chapter, uh, God sent a young prophet up there to cry out against that altar. Remember him? He's the one that disobeyed God and got killed by a lion on the way home. Remember him? Because he believed the lie. Uh, so God got tired of this. Let's read verse 25 and look at, look at Jeroboam's horrible deeds here. Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel, 
the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burned incense. So there's his false religion. See it? See what he's done? That's all to keep the people up here loyal to him. See? All right, now, what do we got? We got a divided kingdom. Ten tribes to the north that kept the name Israel. Two tribes to the south that took the name Judah, eventually becoming known as the Jews because of Judah being the principal tribe. And um, now this thing is divided. Eventually, every king, and when you study kings and chronicles, you'll study kings that ruled in the north over Israel. You'll study the kings that ruled in the south over Judah. Uh, and so it'll give, you, it'll give you all the kings out of each one of these. It'll tell you a little bit about each king, how long he reigned, whether he was good or bad, some of the deeds that he did. This is where you get a king like Ahab and Jezebel. Remember old Ahab? How wicked he was? They ruled up here in the north, see? Then you'll get a king down here in the south like uh, Hezekiah, like Josiah, some of these righteous kings. And of course they had some bad ones too. But eventually, every king up here that ruled the north was wicked, and they became so wicked that in 721 B.C., Assyria, and Assyria was right up in here, way up in here and ruled all this region. Assyria was the dominant world power, and they came in and they conquered these ten tribes. Judah was not conquered here in the south. God let them alone. But he allowed the ten tribes to get conquered. Now Assyria was strong. They could conquer anything they wanted. They were a dominant world power. They had a problem. They could conquer anybody, but they couldn't keep them governed. They couldn't keep their thumb on them. They, had to, they found out, we've got to go back three or four years and conquer them again. Finally, they figured out a way to break this rebellion. They'd conquer smaller countries, several, and they'd take parts of the population out of one that they'd conquered and move them over into other lands they held, and they'd move part of those people into this land from which they'd taken part of the population, and they mixed them. It would be like, uh, say, moving half of Russia to America today and moving half of America out of here and over in other countries and letting folks intermarry. And this is what's happening now a lot to us. It produces a mongrel race. It breaks the nationalistic spirit of a country. And this is finally how the Assyrians learned to keep a nation conquered. We will break their spirit. We will ruin their national pride to where they're not united. And we will, we will mix their populations, and that's what they did. And uh, so they, they took parts of the ten tribes out. They moved heathen people in here, and they intermarried with the remnant of those ten tribes. And that produced a mixed race known as a Samaritan. And the Jews hated them. They hated them because, number one, they had polluted their bloodline. They were not full-blood descendants of Abraham. And secondly, their religion was polluted. It, it had been corrupted too. And so the Jews just looked on them like dogs. Most Jews, a lot of Jews, would not travel between Galilee and Judea going through Samaria. They would, 
cross the Jordan, come up the east side, and when they got back up here, Galilee had a border right in here. They'd cross back in. Jesus, though, many times when traveling between the two, just went right up through Samaria. And that's what He's doing on this occasion. Now, when He runs into this woman here at Jacob's well, she is a Samaritan. And I want you to see the difference now that they have religiously, that they have racially, that they have morally. She is morally corrupt. She is a sinner. She's lived a pretty rough life. He's the sinless Son of God. They don't have anything in common. But He wants to save this woman. And when we take up the study of John 4, that's what we'll do. Now I want to show you something else. Let's, let's go back to John 4 just a minute and uh, to the reading I had there and then I want to come back to the Old Testament briefly with you and we'll close. John 4, as you come on down, verse 4, He must needs go through Samaria. Now we all know what Samaria is and I don't have to go through that next time when we study. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Sychar was a city right here. Sychar, uh, this city right here, was at the foot of a mountain called Mount Ebal, right here. I just drew these for mountains. Just south of it, south of it was Shechem. And it was kind of at the foot of Mount Gerizim. Uh, these two places, there at the foot of, the, of Mount Gerizim was Jacob's well. We don't know much about Jacob's well. The only time it's referred to in the Bible is here in John 4. Evidently, Jacob dug a well there. Now, Jacob owned land right here. He owned land at this place. And Joseph, remember Joseph down in Egypt gave commandment that his bones should be carried up into Canaan because Joseph believed that that land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, his father, would indeed be given to them. And he did want, not want to be buried in Egypt. So when they left out of Egypt, they took Joseph's bones up here. And when they conquered the land of Canaan, incidentally, under Joshua, they buried Joseph's bones up here around Shechem because Joseph had land up there and that's where they buried him. And so he was not buried down in Egypt. If you're wondering what did they do with his bones, they put them in the land of Canaan and they buried him on that land that he had. Now, this land back there had, had, had been visited by uh, Jacob, it had been visited by Abraham right here in this very region we're talking about in this story. Uh, the old patriarchs had, had visited this place a lot. Between these two mountains, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, there's a lot of history right in there. And uh, so I'll, I'll show you here a couple of references to that in just a minute. Jesus is traveling through this country. He's hot, he's thirsty, it's dusty country. It's noon and he's sitting on that well. His disciples went into Sychar. It was about a half a mile. So here's what I want you to understand now. This well of Jacob was right here at the foot of Mount Gerizim and about a half a mile away was the Samaritan city of Sychar. And so 
The woman then that's coming to draw water lives at Sychar. She walks a half a mile one way to that well. She's carrying a water pot. She's got to draw that water, fill that pot, and it gets heavy. Now she's got to walk a half a mile back carrying all that water. I don't know how many times a day she does that. I don't know how many days a week she does it. But any time they don't have water, she comes to that well. And so her, her life is miserable carrying water. She wants to change that. Jesus will use that eventually to convert her. He will tell her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The water that I will give him will be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And she will say, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She don't, she don't like this trip every day, see. And he will use that to bring salvation to her. I'll get into that in the next study. As we come on down in the chapter, uh, Jesus tells her to go call her husband, and she says, I don't have a husband. And that's when he exposes her very carefully. He said, you're, you're right. You've had five husbands. The fellow you're married to now is not your husband. He just read her life like a book. She knows he's a prophet. And rather than repent, and I'll talk about this in the next study, rather than repent when she's confronted with her immorality, she starts a religious argument. I want you to look at verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Now look what she's doing here. She's saying, look, you Jews are modernists. You're liberals. Our fathers worshipped right here in this mountain. Right here. And you Jews are telling us that you've got to go to Jerusalem to worship. See, She's saying, look, you guys are modernists. <laughs> the old traditional way, the old time way where we worship God was right here. And now you've built a, solemn, a temple down here in Jerusalem. You're trying to tell us we've got to go to Jerusalem to worship. But our fathers worshipped up here. The way the good old reliable brethren used to do it is what she's saying to him. Is they worshipped here in this mountain. You Jews are modernists. See, she's trying to argue with Jesus about the place where you worship. He'll have to get her mind off that place, get it off the where and onto the who. And how you worship God and who He is. See? And He'll do that. And I'll talk about that in our study. But... Uh, She's brought up these mountains here. Now, I want to show you something. I want you to go back, and I'll give you a couple of readings, and then we're going to quit for now, because I'll have my background laid that I want to give you. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 6 with me. Genesis 6. Let's talk about Abraham just a minute. Where did Abraham live? He lived down here in a place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. Now right here is the Persian Gulf, and you all remember from the Gulf War that we fought a gulf down in here around Kuwait, down in this area, down in here. Well, Abraham lived down here at Ur. Right over here is Canaan. It's pretty good ways. The Euphrates River comes down, and so the Tigris comes down east of it, and they join. I probably joined them too far up. They joined for a while. And uh, then they split out again. 
if I drew this right and then they come back together and they dump into the Persian Gulf, okay? So God told Abraham, get you out of your father's house and come to a land that I'll show you and I'll make of you a great nation. When Abraham left Ur, he went up here, he went up the Euphrates River, up here to a place called Haran. It's 600 miles, roughly, that he traveled up there. He didn't go straight across the deserts over here into Canaan, but he took his wife Sarah, took his father Terah, took his nephew Lot, because Lot's, Lot's father, Abraham's brother, had died down here. So there were four of them, Terah, his father, Sarah, Abraham, and Lot. And they went up here to Haran, and they stayed right up here till Abraham's father, Terah, died at age, I think he was 210 years old when he died. And so when he died up here in Haran, Abraham left Haran, and now God directed him down into the land of Canaan. Where did he go? Let's read Genesis chapter 12. Let me read with you at least 1 through 6. The Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show you. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. See, he'd gone up to Haran there, six hundred miles northwest. And Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto a place of Sychem, under the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, unto, the, unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. Abraham went right to this spot, Sychem. Sychar. He went right to this place and he built him an altar right here. So when that Samaritan woman said to Jesus, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. See what she's telling him? This is where Abraham was. You're telling me I've got to go to Jerusalem when Abraham worshipped right here. Why do I need to go to Jerusalem? You know, This is the old traditional place. If it was good enough for Father Abraham, in other words, it's good enough for me. That's her argument, see. She thinks she's got a great argument. Furthermore, Jacob was here. Let's go to Genesis 33 right quick. And that's why when you're studying your Old Testament like this, you want to pay, pay attention to these towns they go to, where they build altars and things. Because they may crop up later in other scripture. And uh, you'll have the history of them. Genesis 33, let's go to verse... Uh, he's just met Esau. Uh, let's drop down to 18 for sake of time and, and read through 20. Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, right here, Shechem. He came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, see, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram. Now, he'd gone up in here to Haran, Padanaram, 
right up here is where he'd taken his wife, uh, Leah and Rachel. He went up there to get her from kinfolks, okay? And he labored many years up there, you remember, just to get Rachel. And uh, so he took, that, he took uh, the two daughters of Haran, Leah and Rachel, and uh, everything. And he, now when he leaves out of there with his beloved Rachel, he comes right down here to this very place where Abraham had been, see, on his way back out of there. And so we read there that uh, 18, Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram, and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field. Now if you remember, this, this well here is near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph. So evidently, Jacob had given this, this land right here to Joseph. And that's why Joseph's bones were buried there when they brought him up out of Egypt. And evidently, buying a piece of land, and it says in 19, he bought a parcel of a field when he had spread his, when he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. So he gave a hundred pieces of money for that land up there where Jesus is at right now in John 4. Okay? And he erected there an altar, so he worshiped there, see. And he called it El Elohim, Ohi Israel, which uh, I think when you look in the margins, it'll just mean the God of Israel. That's what it means. That's what he named this place, the God of Israel. And so he builds an altar there. Now likely when you own a piece of land like this, many times you'll, you'll, you'll dig a well. You've got to have water for yourself and for your flocks. And the woman will make a reference to that. She'll say to Jesus, Aren't you, Are thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? So you can see Jacob on land. Now, when this woman says to Jesus, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Abraham worshipped here when he first came out of Haran. Jacob worshipped here and owned land here when he left Paranadam with, with Rachel and Leah, his wives, and met Esau on the way back. This is where he stopped and he bought a piece of land right here. That's her argument. Our fathers worshipped in these mountains. And that'll make, that'll make that a little bit more significant when we get to that in our study on personal work. And you'll remember these things now. What this woman is saying to Jesus because we've looked at the history and the geography of it this morning. So now next time as we study, we'll take up this story and we'll watch Jesus as he carefully maneuvers things and, and uh, talks with this woman and lead, eventually leads her to salvation and through her, he will convert most of that city right there. We will study what his approach was and what he ran into and how he dealt with obstacles and things like that and hopefully just pick up some pointers for you and I when we're talking to other folks. That's the lesson I'll leave with you today, just the background for, for what we're about to do and hope it's been interesting to you and uh, not only that, but profitable to you in some way. Let's have the invitation if someone's in need of our Lord this morning. We're certainly not in a hurry and we want to give you an invitation to come to Christ. Whether you need prayer or whether you need to obey in baptism, if there's something we can help you with, just come forward and sit at the front, if you will, while we rise and sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, 
send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.